After the crash of 2008, we spent £132 billion to bail the banks out. That's a third more than we spend a year on the NHS. Five years on, we still own huge chunks of Lloyd's TSB and the RBS Group. So with public money propping up the system, people are in no mood to forgive and forget. They don't like the fact that the banks let them down. They don't like the fact that they had to bail them out. And you put that on top of all the other day-to-day -day issues, which, you know, service is not very good and uh, value is often disappointing and so on. And, and this is an industry that needs a lot of fixing, a lot of repairing in its relationship with its core customer base. We're left with tough choices. We want the city to be prudent and cautious, looking after our savings, but we need it to take risks and generate wealth for us all. Right now, in some ways, you have the worst of both worlds in the UK, in that you have a public that doesn't like the ideas of banks making money, and frankly, you have many politicians who don't like the idea of banks making money either. They're asking a completely impossible task for the banks, i.e. to become profitable enterprises that don't need government support, and yet, at the same time, they're reacting with horror when the banks actually try to do that. Banks are different to commercial enterprises in other industries. We sit right at the heart of the economies where we do business. You can't have vibrant economies without a vibrant banking system. And without vibrant economies, you can't have stable and vibrant societies. Banks are different, and that was the rationale for stepping in to rescue them. But now, with a new crisis of entirely their own making, banks' special status, some say special pleading, seems harder to stomach. There's no question that society now expects a much higher standard of behaviour, a much higher standard of service of customers than, frankly, was the case in the period running up to the crisis and the early years of the crisis. And I think that banks just have to accept that. Good morning. Well, welcome to the UK Column studio. Uh, delighted to say that we've got another lovely day with uh, a very picturesque uh, view, our backdrop of Plymouth Sound. But today we've got a fascinating uh, guest, uh, a gentleman called uh, Trevor Kitchen. And uh, Trevor is joining us to talk about uh, his experience as a whistleblower within the banking system. It's quite an incredible story. Uh, he's going to take us through that and I think that this is going to lead into a very interesting discussion about what really goes on inside the banking sector. Trevor, welcome to UK Column Studio and uh, thank you very much for speaking to us today. Well, thank you for having me, Brian. Um, well, first of all, I'd like to say that I think it's, it's uh, quite important to make this first statement that if... Um, uh, if authorities can manipulate speech and opinion, then they can manipulate this uh, society using their laws. Uh, I worked in finance most of my life. I'm retired now. And, uh, you know, when I retired, I sort of took up investing in currency. Uh, it was a sort of supplement to my pension, if you like. Um, that was back in 2008, 2009. Uh, without going into too much detail, I noticed that the Swiss franc was relentlessly appreciating against uh, three major currencies, namely the US dollar, sterling, and euro. Against the dollar, it, it had appreciated by more than 150%. And as we know, the US dollar is the world's reserve currency. That's used to value oil, precious metals, and many other commodities. So after analyzing this massive shift in the Swiss franc, and it's always going north, by the way, the Swiss franc. I don't know what the connection there is, really. I've got my suspicions. Analyzing that, I, uh, I use my... 40-odd years experience in 
financial management. Um, and I became aware that this might affect pensions and purchasing power of other countries, mainly other countries outside of uh, this currency. So I reported these suspicions um, of currency manipulation to multiple regulators. I started in the UK with uh, the financial, I think it was called the Financial Services Authority then. Um, they closed down six months later and reopened as the Financial Conduct Authority, I think they call themselves now. So that was a bit suspicious too. Um, anyway, I, I reported to the USA's regulators, Switzerland's regulators and the EU Commission. Uh, what my findings were. And, and I also reported to the um, Swiss law enforcement authorities that I thought there was something going on with these currencies. Um, both the media, when they got hold of the story, and uh, whistleblower lawyers, they both recognized me instantly and labeled me as a whistleblower. Um, now, I wasn't an insider working in banks. I've always worked in manufacturing industry, that sort of um, area, services and manufacturing, never in banking or financial services. Uh, it's mostly been in, uh, as I say, production and so on. So when they labeled me as a whistleblower, I said, well, hang on a moment. I'm not really a whistleblower. I'm a victim because I've lost a lot of money on this currency which had, uh, you know, I'd been buying up the pound and, and the euro and dollar, thinking, well, their fall or the decrease in the value of those should eventually stop. Well, I was very wrong. It didn't stop. The Swiss franc kept going through the roof. And eventually, major banks, uh, about two or three years after I made these findings and reported it, Eventually, uh, the major banks were ended up being fined over $10 billion around the world. Now, 11 years on, my case is still pending at the um, USA regulator, which is called the Commodities Future Trading Authority, the CFTC, actually. Um, so that's that's on the on the. Uh, you know, what I've done up until then. Does that sort of uh, give you a pretty good idea? Uh, yes, it does. I've got just a couple of questions. Um, mm -hmm. So what date was it when, when the fines came in as a result of, of, what, of the information that you'd given to the authorities? That was, uh, to be precise, November 2014. Right. And was this connected to or a key, a key part of the Forex? Um, Absolutely. It was all about right. uh, foreign exchange manipulation. Um, what, what I noticed the regulators and the media immediately jumped on was that this was not about the huge um, appreciation of the Swiss franc, but it was more about small moves at the 4 p.m. UK closing time, when they close out the currencies each, on, on each day, the traders in London close out all the, all the trades um, at around about 4 p.m. And they said that they were manipulating those rates and they found a cartel that were doing that. But this, this was never my point. My point was, why was the uh, Swiss franc appreciating by 150% against the world's um, reserve currency, the US dollar. You know, if the, if the US dollar loses its value like that, you have to ask yourself, um, you know, the prices of all these commodities and oil and precious metals um, are, are priced in dollars. So what happens to the the, the, the man in the street, when the value of his money is is is, is dropped by you know by fifty percent in this case on the inverse. Trevor, uh, extremely good point. I, I've got in front of me. I just decided to to get some basic information around forex. This was partly for my own understanding, but I think this little bit would be of value to the audience uh, if we read it out. Uh, it's entitled effects effects and it says as of mm -hmm. december 
2014, the monetary losses caused by manipulation of the Forex market were estimated to represent some 11.5 billion US dollars for Britain's 20.7 million pension holders alone. That's 7.5 billion pounds a year. It says the manipulations affected customers all around the world for over a decade. The manipulation's overall estimated cost is not yet fully known. So um, the key point here is that not only was there massive fraud and corruption going on, but the effect on ordinary people in the street was also massive uh, because of the sums of money and the number of pension holders that were in particular that were affected. So it's saying 20.7 million here. And I'll just add a, another bit of background. So, I mean, people can check this themselves. If you just go on Wikipedia and look at the Forex scandal, um, it said at the centre of the investigation were the transcripts of electronic chat rooms in which senior currency traders discussed with their competitors at other banks the types and volume of the trades they planned to place. The chat rooms had names such as the Cartel, the Bandits Club, One Team, One Dream, the Mafia. The discussions in the chat rooms were interspersed with jokes about manipulating the Forex market and repeated references to alcohol, drugs and women. Now, this is just from Wikipedia, but I'll say that it comes with a very long uh, list of uh, references from where they've uh, from where the information has come from. Um, so I think that it's it's pretty um, reliable uh, what I've just read out there. But this is this is amazing stuff that you've got a group of people uh, exerting such power over such large financial interests. Yes, um, you do, and I must. Say say this is only the tip of the iceberg because this manipulation that they refer to the bandits club the mafia and everything that's written on wikipedia i must say i have not contributed to that with my story yet uh, when i get round to it one day i think it will make for interesting reading but the okay trevor trevor sorry if i can just come back in a minute just to we're just mm -hmm. setting the foundations here, and I know you've got you've got a lot of inf yeah. information which uh, we we're delighted to uh, to discuss. But just just come on the basics. So you're operating um, in the markets as a as an individual um, trader for your for your own personal interests, and that's correct. You then realise that you're seeing fundamentally wrong, and you you go to the authorities. What do you actually take to the authorities as, as evidence to support the, at the, in the beginning, the claims that you were making? What did you take to the authorities? Was it-, was it I gave the, the authorities 57,000 rows of transactions in a spreadsheet, showing them that these currencies were moving by up to double digits in a day, sometimes up and down. This was nothing to do with, um, you know, the drastic impact on currencies has nothing to do with this 4 p.m. Of course, that 4 p.m. Uh, cartel, they were making money from moving the rates during the closing time of 4 p.m. But this is nothing in comparison to what's gone on. I mean, to unwind all of this will take many, many years because this is not about small moves at 4 p.m. in the afternoon. This is about a massive move of the Swiss franc, which was what I'd shown to the regulators. And it was just going vertical, the Swiss franc, and sometimes by double ditches in a day. And the regulators came back to me and said, yes, please send us all of your information. I did that. Um, and they said, we'll investigate it. And that was the last I heard of them, basically. Right. So so you sent them very detailed information. They obviously reacted to that. Uh, it then all goes quiet. And what, what was the next thing that happened? The the Forex bubble burst? Um, well, I went to the newspaper then. I went to the IB Times, the International Business Times. And um, I saw that 
in the, they'd started reporting, I think it was somewhere in 2013 in June. I'd been reporting all of my emails, copying all my emails to Bloomberg and some other press uh, media. Um, suddenly, two years after I'd reported, Bloomberg come out with a, an article saying we found out about the cartel and the mafia that you just mentioned. And I went to the media, straight back to the media, and I said, it's, this was reported two years ago by me, and it has nothing to do with the 4 p.m. close. Of course, again, I'll repeat, the 4 p.m. close did have an impact, and there were they were found to be uh, manipulating the markets, but nothing to do really with the story that I was reporting. Okay, and just to be clear, they're, they're called the 4 p.m. I can't quite pick up what the name the of 4 that PM, Yeah, the 4 p.m. close is when they the traders in London oh, uh, and around the globe start closing out the rates for the day, a bit like they do with LIBOR. Right, okay. They close at the end of the trade trading day and they they're moving at very very small increments during that period and if they buy and sell on one side of the planet between one another they can manipulate those rates and that's what they were found to have done but these well, these are tiny moves that banks can then throw a lot of uh, money into as a huge transaction and they can make a lot of money on that because simply because they use a massive amount of money to move those uh, those currencies by just a small percentage uh, that they benefit from. Right. Okay. I'm I'm just going to say for our viewers and listeners, uh, Trevor, that we're 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 getting a little bit of break up in your uh, transmission. So Trevor at the moment is in some quite difficult circumstances. So he's using a very small dongle in order to make the connection with us today. We'll persevere. Uh, but our plan is that um, if uh, if there's too much breakup, we'll just um, go for an audio stream and see see whether things settle down. But I'm going to I'm going to continue because we're we're into some really important things here. So you uh, you've put your information into the authorities. Then a little bit later, you're able to have a dialogue with um, a major media organizations international business times being one of them and where does this then go do they show an interest in what you you have to say oh yes they they published a, an exclusive article in 2013 about two days after bloomberg article was released um and i think after that it was mentioned in probably 50 or 60 articles after that after that date so uh, the, I'd written also to the European Union, to Michel Barnier. I'd written to uh, Al-Nunia, I think it's uh, Al-Nunia someone there. He was a finance uh, person. And I got messages back from these people that they were looking into it. I got a lot of correspondence from the EU. Um, in fact, um, uh, this this one person was on the um, CNBC in Davos, and he had mentioned that this was, was an allied whistleblower who had brought this to the attention. The Bank of England also put that in a in a BBC article, saying that it was an outside whistleblower who had alerted them, who were, who was the catalyst behind this, uh, and had alerted them. And he was quite shocked that it took an outside person at the bank. The Bank of England were quite shocked that it took an outside person to bring this to the attention of the regulators and authorities. Um, Trevor, that's a very interesting comment because I know that in the uh, the descriptor by Wikipedia, it mentions that actually two traders involved in one of the clubs, I'm not sure which club it was, but one of the clubs that was clearly orchestrating the fraud, two of those traders were from the Bank of England. Oh, okay. So that's, that's interesting. That's, that's an interesting little point, isn't it? And the other one is mm -hmm. I, I've just so I've got the flow in my head. Just remind me of the date. You're now talking about the European Union being involved. What date are we were we talking about? 
Yes, I, I think the European Union uh, also got involved around uh, 2013 through to 2014. It went very quickly. Once investigations opened up, apparently the banks came and uh, self-confessed type of thing uh, or self-reported. Um, they made agreements with uh, regulators that if they uh, would uh, volunteer to give information, uh, these emails uh, about these cartels, that, this, uh, that they would be more lenient on them in the fine. But as you mentioned, this this had a drastic impact, and they don't know yet uh, how huge that is. I mean, they talk about 10 billion on the pensions in the UK. That's just the UK. This market is a 4.8 trillion trillion with a T uh, market a day on on the currencies that moves. Now, a couple of the lawyers that I spoke to, whistleblower lawyers in the USA uh, told me, well, this is quite normal that um, uh, during a time of uh, conflict and crisis that were going on in the world, you know, with the subprime and, and things like this, that they move into a safety haven currency. Well, I, I didn't buy that because moving money into the Swiss franc, if you tried to open up an account in Switzerland, as an as a individual, you wouldn't be allowed to unless you're a resident there. So the only people moving money into the Swiss franc were the big banks and uh, high net worth individuals and uh, corporations. This is not allowed for the, uh, the man in the street to, to go in and buy into uh, uh, Swiss francs, into you know, put, open up bank accounts in Switzerland as a safety haven. That's just not allowed especially with today's automatic exchange of information or tax reasons, uh, money laundering reasons, and all of these um, issues. It's just not allowed anymore. And, right. and, and the more you travel around the world, you realize how difficult it is. Yeah. Yeah, Trevor, what, what you're describing within the banking system is, of course, a club, isn't it? We could call it cartel it as well, but I... I'm going to call it a club in the first instance that you have to be in the banking club in order to be able to trade in these markets at all. You can't participate as an individual. You can't participate as a as a company. You actually have to be in the banking club to get in and trade. So that should be a, an area of concern for people in whatever country they they live in the world, because ultimately the club controls the world uh, currency markets and trading markets the currency as you say is uh, not just the currency trading markets i remember a few years back also around the time i started uh, trading in currencies i attempted to buy shares in the london array which was the um uh, you know the windmills out in the thames uh, and i saw that as a good uh, investment and, and I asked if I could uh, invest in it. And I was told straight out by the banks, you cannot invest in this. We choose who invests and who doesn't invest. So it's one law for them and one law for everyone else. Yes, um, precisely. So I'd, uh, let's just emphasize some of the figures that you talked about. Just give us the overall value of the trading. You mentioned a figure just now, I think something. Uh, it's about 4.8. That was was back in 2015, it's probably more than that now, $4.8 trillion are traded on the currency markets every day, every single day. Right. Um, and I must say that since these huge movements into the Swiss franc, which continues to appreciate, by the way, this last few weeks, especially with the uh, situation going on with the, with the UK's uh, government now, um, the, you know, these markets just keep moving up for the Swiss franc. And one has to ask, how come the Swiss franc can be the only beneficiary here while everyone else's currency is going down? And who's putting the money into the Swiss franc? Who is doing that? The, the Bank of International Settlements, as you know, is based in Switzerland. The yes. Bank of International Settlements runs all the transactions for the entire planet's central banking system. They 
are the bank of banks. Right. This this is an extremely good point. And uh, the Bank of International Settlements is a sort of open secret because, of course, it's there. You can visit the uh, website. You can see it. Um, but uh, if you talk to people, particularly, I'm going to say politicians, and you ask them, have they heard of the Bank of International Settlements? The usual answer is no. People have no idea of this bank and its power and position. But I'm just going to step back from that a minute, but just to reinforce this business of, of what happened as a result of the, the, uh, the Forex thing being exposed. So you talked about fines being issued. And I'm just going to come mm -hmm. back to this uh, Wikipedia report here. But it says on the 12th of November 2014, the United Kingdom's Financial Conduct Authority imposed fines totaling 1.7 billion, uh, that's US dollars, on five banks for failing to control business practices in their G10 spot foreign exchange trading operations, specifically uh, Citibank was fined $358 million, uh, HSBC $343 million, JP Morgan $352 million, RBS $344 and UBS $371 million. Uh, there were then also fines imposed by the regulators in other countries. Uh, so the, the UK, in, uh, sorry, sorry, the UK was also the US and the Swiss authorities. Uh, did actually put fines in. So uh, if I take, um, which bank are we going to take? JP Morgan, um, that's uh, 1,904 million US dollars in fines. That tells me two yep. things. One is the amount of money that the banks have at their disposal, but also if you can pay a, a fine of that size, the, the amount of money that you're actually handling is huge. You're not bothered. And where are you generating that money from? There is no traditional banking as such anymore. It's mostly online. So it's all investment banking. Yes. So you, you have a very good question there. Where are they generating money to create fines like that? I mean, this can come from a couple of places. I mean, I look at quantitative easing as nothing less than counterfeit. That's the way I look at it. They've counterfeited all these trillions of dollars that they've been printing and throwing out into the um, into the markets. Most of that money has gone back into the um, stock markets, which is all heading north as they were printing. And um, of course, that's had an effect on the rest of the population who now have to pay more money for commodities. Yes. This is where the inflation is coming from. It's nothing to do with war in Russia and Ukraine. This, this is all about the trillions of dollars and euros that they've been printing for the last six years. It's trillions, not billions, that they printed. I think the EU are up to about two trillion now. And now they're blaming it on Russia that we have inflation. It's because of the money they printed. And that money feeds these banks. These, these banks then can pay fines and they offset those fines against taxes, which again, the man in the street, uh, you know, loses out on. It's incredible what goes on. Uh, well, I'll add to that, Trevor, and this is the, my last yeah. comment on the Wikipedia report, but it, it is a very good yes. overall report. As of course, it pointed out that one of the traders was, uh, was arrested in UK, uh, but it appears that worldwide, all that happened to the traders is that they were sacked. And presumably yes. after, after a period of time, they were re-employed elsewhere and everybody quietly forgot the deeds that they'd done. So we'll emphasize the point. If you were, you're an ordinary man in the street and you get involved in what is absolutely, you know, fraud. Well, there's no you'd, still be, you'd still be in prison, yes. You would still be in prison now. And yeah. I just want to also add that, that as you were reporting to the European Union, uh, I think we should remember that, of course, back in um, early 2000, 2002, uh, there was a lot of information coming out of the EU about fraud and corruption, financial irregularities uh, inside the EU itself. And people may remember that a certain gentleman 
called Mr. Kinnock was the man who was taking all the flack for what, what was actually happening. He was commission vice president. And he admitted in a Radio 4 broadcast, this is back in 2002, um, that he couldn't stop the fraud going on. And um, uh, there was a lady called Marta Andreasen. Um, she was, let me just put my glasses on here. Uh, she was the, at the time, the chief accountant for the European Union. And uh, she came out and spoke out and said that basically uh, the EU was covering up what she called criticism of the flawed accounting that left its 63,000 million budget open to massive fraud. Uh, so that's one thing of interesting. But also um, Mr. Kinnock print, uh, published a whistleblower's charter and that offered guidelines to EU staff who wanted to report suspicions of corruption. And the irony is that that uh, Kinnock report for uh, Kinnock guidelines for whistleblowers was released on the same day that an EU report came out revealing that the EU had lost one billion, I think it's US dollars, one billion US dollars due to fraud and fiscal irregularities. So what I'm trying to stress here is that, is that even years before you got in contact with the European Union, it was itself facing uh, whistleblowers who were saying the EU itself is massively corrupt. And one of the people who mm -hmm. came forward at a later stage was an MEP called Paul von Boutener. And he actually produced a book, Whistleblowing on the Fraud and Corruption in the in the European Union, in particular around uh, uh, members' expenses. And of course, what happened to him, he was completely uh, hounded and victimized and pressured to try and to get him to back off. And I will say that I had the opportunity to travel over to Brussels and I, I met uh, Paul von Boutener in person. And we had a very interesting discussion about not only the fraud and corruption going on inside the European Union, uh, but also the fact that the organisation itself did not appear to be a benign political organisation looking out for the best interest of its member countries. But that drifts off into a slightly different area. We just stay on the fraud and say that Paul von Boutner was one of the very brave whistleblowers who back in around, I think it was around 2008, maybe a little bit before, uh, was saying we've got massive problems inside the EU. And um, uh, I'll, I'll give one more point on this, that at, at a particular stage, about 2012, uh, there was significant fraud discovered within Sheffield City Council's remit. Uh, a lot of the fraud concerned EU uh, grant money. Of course, at that time, many of the uh, local authorities or city councils in, in the UK were feeding off European funds and grants. A gentleman, well qualified by his own profession, discovered what was happening. And to cut a very long story short, after he blew the whistle on the fraud and corruption, the multi-million pound fraud and corruption in Sheffield, uh, he was subjected to some really unpleasant threats and intimidation. But ultimately, uh, the EU's um, investigative body, OLAF, got involved. And the end of the story was that as far as the whistleblower was concerned, OLAF whitewashed the whole affair. So there was absolutely nothing to see. So I'm just echoing this back to you to say that uh, you've come in at a very important and a very high level. Um, but it's certainly true that over the years, a great many years, other people have been doing their best to expose the uh, fraud and corruption going on with uh, uh, not only money markets or trading, but also to do with hundreds of millions of pounds worth of, of grant yeah. money particularly uh, the, the eu is not a government it's it's just a an organization a trading organization that sits in the middle of all these european countries 
I, I agree. There, there's absolutely no whistleblower protection. What the EU says is one thing. What they actually do is another. And that's just been proved to me when I was recently arrested in Holland for a second time, stripped naked and thrown in prison. Uh, for, right, Tre uh, Trevor, the, let, let me just come... Crime. Let me just come yeah. back in here, Trevor, because let's yeah. let's uh, for the viewers, for the listeners who are, are with mm -hmm. us today, let's take your story on. So you'd reported the uh, all of this information. The forex thing had exploded into the world press. There have been multi-million, hundreds of pounds of, and dollars of fines on the banks. Um, what happened then to you? Did life become quiet? Because you're in an interesting situation at the moment. You're trapped in Holland. You've had your yeah. you've had your passport taken away from you, and at the moment you're waiting to see whether the Swiss government is going to manage to extradite you for some, I'm going to say rather strange uh, charges. Um, take us from the time that you had exposed the fraud and corruption to the and discussed it with the media. How is it that you've mm -hmm. now ended up in this position where you're locked in uh, the Netherlands at the moment? Um, well, first of all, I'm no longer in the Netherlands. I'm living in a um, uh, sanctuary at the moment, and I'd rather not say where, but I'm no longer in um, Schengen Wonderland. Um, I'm, I'm free where I am. But I'm not in Holland. I've, uh, they've regarded me now as a, uh, as a fugitive. Um, I would rather uh, say that I'm not a, a fugitive. I'm a person who's uh, escaping persecution and stalking by the Swiss government. But before I go into that, um, Brian, could I just jump back a, a few minutes to what you mentioned about those traders who had been arrested and released earlier? Would you mind if I just go back to that point? In, um, because I brought that up with the regulators and I said, well, if these traders have now been freed, isn't it time then that the uh, regulators and the governments repay the fines that they imposed on the banks if there was no crime committed? I got no answer. You understand the point I was making? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So I said, well, basically, if these traders have been now freed and they've said that they never committed any crimes, those uh, mafia and 4PM people and, and the ones from LIBOR as well, that you found out eventually that they committed no crimes, one, uh, do they get compensated? And secondly, do you have to pay the fines back that you, you imposed on the banks? And they never responded to that. In fact, well, they did respond. They, they just don't help me anymore with my whistleblowing issues. So, um, yeah, I was um, blackmailed back in 2020 by a Swiss banker um, and lawyer in Switzerland, and I reported that to the uh, Swiss Law Society and the Swiss authorities. And the banker and lawyer actually retaliated by filing criminal defamation charges against me. Now, yes, <laughs> speech is a crime in Switzerland. At the time, though, I was living in Ireland and, uh, you know, defamation, alleged defamation uh, doesn't exist in, in Ireland. It's uh, it, as, as a crime. It's, it's a civil common law area, the same as the UK. And I think the other is Norway. The rest of the European Union and what I now call the Schengen Wonderland, they've actually retained these archaic defamation laws in order to silence people who report criminal activity, especially financial criminal activities. So anyway, the Swiss authorities refused to listen to my side of the story, and they chose to aid this banker and his lawyer. The Swiss uh, prosecutor promptly issued a European arrest warrant for my arrest. I was arrested in Madeira. I was living there at the time. They took me in, stripped me naked. This was part of the humiliation. They threw me in prison for 48 hours and they uh, denied me my vital medicines. Uh, after five months of house arrest in Madeira, uh, four judges at a Lisbon Supreme Court denied the Swiss extradition 
And those court hearings revealed that the Swiss prosecutor, working with this Portuguese prosecutor, had abused their powers and perverted the law uh, and violated principles governing all the international judicial cooperation of the European arrest warrant. Their actions were actually characterized as being political repression that constituted to persecution and revenge. So my lawyer then, when I won this extradition case, my UK lawyer wrote to the Swiss requesting to have this extradition request removed. Well, of course, we know that Michel um, uh, Lauber, Michael Lauber, the Swiss attorney general, had been fired on corruption charges. So he had two deputies, deputies standing in for him. They ignored my lawyer's two letters completely. He wrote, we wrote to the federal police. They came back and said they'd done nothing unlawfully. That was their response to me. The, federal, the Swiss federal police wrote back and said, there is nothing unlawfully. So I said, well, could you tell me if there's something lawful in the records? They didn't respond. That was the end of it. My wife and I then decided, let's get out of this Schengen wonderland and move to another country outside of Europe. And we were transiting. I made a huge mistake by transiting Holland. I was stopped again on April the 21st, a couple of months ago. Um, the Royal Dutch police uh, took me into a cell um, for two nights. Uh, and then a prosecutor came and complained that he was missing his, his bus home and he had to get a move on and put me in a detention center with drug smugglers and the real criminals. So they put me in a, a, a detention center for a further 14 days, confiscated my passport, uh, and then a couple of judges let me out, and I was put under house arrest and told I can't go anywhere, and this might take up to six months or a year uh, to, to resolve. Now, in order to let me out, my wife had to go and rent a 22-square-meter bedroom in a Radisson hotel at 3,000 euros a month. We couldn't afford that. So I, I went back to my lawyer and said, well, I've got to go somewhere where it's cheaper to live. And they said, well, dodging extradition is not a criminal offense. That's the reason I left. I, I left uh, uh, that territory. <laughs> And I've been told if I ever go back there, I'll be rearrested. Um, I wrote to the Swiss prosecutor, and she uh, came back to me. I, I offered to go to Switzerland to resolve this long case, outstanding issue. And she rejected it flatly and said, no, you will be es escorted with armed police back to Switzerland. So now I'm a political refugee being hunted by a group of Swiss, aided by the Swiss state. These people are on a vendetta to get even with me because I exposed the currency manipulation, and then I went on about blackmail at a later stage. That's basically what they've done. Um, they've, they've got fed up of me complaining to them, and it's all about silencing people. And I must, for your public, I must make them aware of this. Their defamation in Europe is a criminal offence, not in the UK, not in Ireland, and not in Norway. In Switzerland, there are absolutely no abeas corpus rights. If you're arrested in Switzerland or Holland, they can keep you in prison without a trial until the prosecutor decides to let you out. You will not see anyone. 90% of the cases in Switzerland have no independent judges. They are judged by the prosecutors. I was told by my lawyer in Holland that many people are sitting in that same prison where I was for years on end, years without any chance of seeing a judge. Back to Switzerland, 80% of the prisoners are foreign. Right. There's a number of points there, uh, Trevor. Just. Uh... I think keeping this. I hope. I hope it. No, I no. Hope it's not, not at all. Not at all. What What you've said has actually been very concise. I wonder whether we could, though, 
the, what I'm curious about is uh, you are you are saying you exposed the trading, and that that yes. was we're going to about what 2015 when it came out publicly, or or, or probably there was 2014 media comment. And you were involved then. Then it appears to go quiet for five years through to, you, you said, 2020, when you started to have problems with this particular. No, you said that you were being blackmailed. Are you, are you able to tell us more about what actually happened? Blackmail is a yes. particularly nasty thing. So yep. what, what blackmail was applied and who did you suspect was putting that pressure on? Okay, well, that's very easy, and I can put that very uh, succinctly for you. What happened in 2011 was um, a Swiss banker was introduced to me in Switzerland, and uh, he came around to my house with a, with a, a mutual friend and I asked if I could help him with an investment in America. So I said, yes, I'll, I'll, I'll help him. and. Um, he wanted to know what I would charge him. And I said, well, look, let's do the investment. And at the end, if you want to give me something, you can pay me a small commission. So I, I, he, he was a banker. That's the key. He was a banker, and he knew that I was working on this currency manipulation case. That was the key. Um, of, of course, when he got paid his money, after a year, I worked three years with him up and uh, sorry, I worked with him until about 2017, it was 2018. And uh, he, he made a lot of money on that investment. And he, he'd signed an agreement with me to pay me. And uh, as soon as he got the money, his lawyer wrote me an email saying um, he doesn't owe you this money. So I basically wrote back to him. And I called him a parasite and a flagrist and, and uh, a deceitful character, uncreditworthy, and that he didn't uh, honor his debts. The lawyer came back and said, well, now we've got you for defamation, and that's a crime in Switzerland. And I said, well, haha, I'm in Ireland, and it's not a crime here. Take a civil case against me if you like, but keep the money. Um, they didn't do that. They obviously went out and took a criminal case against me. And they used that criminal case as leverage to then write back to me and said, we'll remove the criminal case if you sign a letter. And that letter gave them rights to power of attorney over all of the debt that he owed me, the debt that he owed me. And it gave them rights to... If I ever mentioned anything about it in this letter, it said I would be uh, uh, responsible to pay him uh, 50,000 Swiss francs every time I said something. So I sent this off to my lawyer in Ireland and he called it sharp practice and blackmail. So I sent that to the Swiss authorities. And so things escalated from there. And I think that this banker then went to the Swiss authorities and said to them, this is the same person who was complaining about the currency manipulation many years ago. And that's where I get the connection on this, the one case with the other. This was just a follow-up. They just got fed up of me reporting crime. Reporting crime, financial crime in Switzerland is a crime, especially if you go against a banker and, and, and lawyer. And, uh, and by the way, I'd also reported his lawyer to the Law Society. That is something you just don't do in Switzerland. They are all connected. Going back to what you said earlier, they are in a private club. It's a banker club. It's, it's a, um, a lawyer club who write the laws for these guys, who can manipulate laws and change laws as they deem fit. And that works out all the way up to the top of the European Union, I believe. It's conglomerates and it's companies. Indeed. It's companies, huge, huge companies with banking and, and, and law and law society behind them that can keep control over. And if they, again, going back to the very uh, beginning of this um, uh, interview, 
I said, if they can manipulate speech and opinion, they can manipulate society using their laws. And that's exactly what they're doing. This is why these countries in Europe maintain these archaic, outdated um, speech laws. It's so that they can silence people. Yes. Again, there's a, there's a, there's a number of really interesting things there, Trevor. Let's, let's just pick a little bit at it. Am I yeah. right in thinking that from the time that you did the big exposure up until the time that this Swiss banker approached you, during that period, you were still uh, discovering things and reporting, uh, reporting circumstances uh, of wrongdoing oh, yes. within the system? Absolutely. That went on between 2011, late 2011, when I, I met this banker uh, probably about two months after I'd reported the currency. I reported the currency crisis uh, scandal in August 2011, and he suddenly appeared in the September of that same year, 2011. Um, what I continued to do then with the currency crisis and scandal was I continued reporting and dealing with lawyers all the way through to um, 2016. We filed uh, uh, lawyers, whistleblower lawyers, got me to file a complete 200-page report um, to the um, Commodities and Futures Trading Committee in the USA. And that's still going on 11 years later, by the way. Right. So, um, so it, it, this is just what comes into my head, but it seems to me, well, this, it's remarkable that after your very high, your personal exposure in, in, in what you'd done to show what was going on in the banking system and the Swiss are implicated, it seemed, and you're continuing to um, hold them to account, you're poking sticks in, you're causing trouble. That's definitely, from their point of view, the thing. <laughs> It seems to me remarkable yes. that a Swiss banker then decides to pick you in order to uh, get advice as to what he should be doing on the market. And what, what my brain says is, did this banker come along in order to entrap you, in order to bring you into a, uh, a field where you could be controlled? Because I know that this well, is... Yeah. I wrote that to the authorities and to the federal police in Switzerland. My initial uh, report said to them, I feel like I've been entrapped, coerced, and I'm uh, now being blackmailed. I actually wrote the word entrapment, that yeah. I've been entrapped. Because he, he just suddenly arrived from nowhere with, a, with a, a colleague friend of mine. I said, how did you know this person? And they said, oh, well, in fact, they said he was a Jehovah's Witness. That's how they got in the door. I'm not a Jehovah's Witness, by the way, but that's what they said, that he was a Jehovah's Witness. Now, what I've learned since is that these Jehovah's Witnesses have a lot of resources within their um, congregations. They have lawyers, bankers, high-profile people, very rich people. Um, and, of course, then I, when I went to the police with this, not about Jehovah's Witness, but I said that this person from the bank had also been an associate of uh, an, another Swiss banker who was involved in an extortion case of 26 million Swiss francs. All hell broke loose. They really right. came after me because right. this banker uh, is a very rich person living in America. He lives between Zurich and America. And uh, I noticed that he'd been in involved in this extortion case uh, involving about 26 million Swiss francs. Uh, and I brought that up to the police. I didn't think that they would leak this, I, but somehow I now suspect that they leaked that to the prosecutor, who I also think is working in cahoots with this banker and his lawyer. The, the, the law society in Switzerland support one another. Uh, yes, they, and they really do. You cannot go against the lawyers there. I, I think the same situation is is true in in virtually every country, certainly the Western countries. Although, of course, we do have this difference in the law. Um, and I'll I just emphasise 
for people to understand it is that in UK, you are quite within your rights to say that a particular city council, for example, is corrupt. You can say, state that publicly and there is nothing the council can do against you. But if you were to accuse a French city council of being corrupt, they could immediately uh, take you to court for making that statement. So, yeah, the, the difference in free speech uh, is remarkable, although we're seeing massive erosion of it coming in UK, at least. Uh, but that's a whole whole nother topic. I just want to say at this point that you were kind enough to send me a couple of articles. The Telegraph had reported on what was happening to you on the 14th mm -hmm. of March, 2021. And it's a very simple article, uh, yes, about what what has happened to you it's the headline is finance chief who exposed currency scandal fights swiss extradition bid for criminal defamation financial chief believes uh, an extradition request for criminal defamation is linked to his role in exposing a multi-million pound currency scandal and they then give a reasonable summary of what had happened to you up up until that date um, and then it just ends with the Swiss embassy has been conducted for comment. But my feeling on reading this article is that the Telegraph wasn't really digging into this. It, they just gave a sort of coverage article. Did, did the Telegraph report anything more? Uh, no. He, uh, Charles Hymas, who wrote that article, came back to me later asking me for a lot of information. Um, especially after I'd won it the Supreme Court in Lisbon, the extradition um, denial, the denial for the extradition. And I put a lot of information together for him just onto two pages, very brief and to the point. And he just let it go. He never bothered again. Um, I spoke to my lawyer about it. He contacted a couple of uh, PR relations uh, companies and said well you know basically uh nobody's interested in your story anymore and that was it and, uh, and that, that's an incredible the thought, yeah the reason i thought that they were coming after me for the currency is because nobody no sane person would chase another person around the world for defamation like this and as you rightfully said earlier on with if you if you mention something against a french person in the uk um then then you'll end up in court but you won't end up in prison because there's yeah. no dual crime. That's what they go on with this European arrest warrant. It must be a dual crime in both countries. Uh, as defamation is not a crime in the UK, I, you know, they cannot extradite me from the UK. But right. they could extradite me. That's what they're doing. They're basically waiting to pounce on me in every single European country that I go through, just as a revenge, as a as a vindictive. Uh, gesture, you know, it's yeah. just they're just out for revenge. They want to silence me, and that's it. And I'm too old to be silenced. I don't care anymore. Well, tr Trevor, we're going to say to you, well, well done for doing what what you've done, because at the end of the day, it's only when people speak out and blow the whistle that that we start to learn what's really going on. So, um, that, that's the comment from us. We did the Telegraph. I'm just going to mention Private Eye. Now, I'm not a fan of Private Eye. Um, um, okay. ma main reason is that I believe that Private Eye is very good about making a joke of what is often a very serious matter. And uh, at the end of the day, what that does is, is suppresses the seriousness. It's all a bit jokey. There's a rotten borough and this is a bit of a laugh. Nothing gets done about the rotten butter, the rotten borough, because everybody's laughing at it. Um, and all I'm going to say is, well, you've got a column in Private Eye, which did get some more information out, but they called you a Swiss troll, which I found pretty objectionable. So I, I'm just going to push Private Eye to one side and say they did report, and people can. Uh, I'm not sure what date Private Eye was. Yeah. Um, haven't actually got it here, but people I'm sure can find the report. It's called Whistleblowers Swiss Troll. But um, they did get some information out. But the article. Oh, I, yeah. Go ahead. I interpret 
interpreted I interpreted that, that they were calling the Swiss authorities the trolls, not myself. Uh, that they were trolling after me. Um, that's oh, I see. I okay. But I, but I do get what you're saying about that. You cannot really take it seriously. That it sort of suppresses the seriousness of this case. Yeah. And the, that um, journalist who wrote that um, article was actually um, he he does uh, articles for many many um, media outlets, uh, namely. The, I think the one that he was going to work on was the Times, and they they were they'd lost interest. He 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 got in touch with me and said that he wanted to do an article. I gave him all the information, and the article was meant to go in the Times. And uh, then he came back to me and said, "Sorry, they've lost interest." Uh, they rushed me to get the article done, so I worked day and night for. 24 hours to get a nice um, story together for them. And then they said, no, they'd lost it. And he ended up feeling probably a little bit uh, um, uh, s sorry about it. So he put he put it in the um, private eye. Okay. Well, th I thought thank exactly you. the same as you. It doesn't really have the same impact. <laughs> well, no, but thank you for telling us that because that tells us something else. The journalists, let's let's be fair to to that journalist. They at least tried to get the story in a in in a yes, higher profile paper, and they didn't. So thanks for adding that. Now we're coming up to the hour, so I think we should we should stop in just a couple of minutes. Um, but before we do, I just wanted to. Uh, read through. These were some bullet points that the, that you sent through to us a couple of days ago, um, and it's it's a summation, really, your summation of of the way that things work when you blow the whistle and what's happening with the fraud and corruption in the uh, the system. So let me just read these because I thought they were very good. Um, you you called the EU's reaction to how it protects whistleblowers as a farce. It said, you say the whistleblowers are still regarded as enemies of the state in most European countries, especially Switzerland and Holland, uh, where reporting uh, financial wrongdoings upsets their economic interests. If you do that, it's regarded as a crime. And to me, yeah, absolutely. And it's happening in UK as well. I'll mention something before we finally finish. Uh, it says, with exemption, with exception to UK, Republic of Ireland and Norway, where decimate, uh, sorry, I'm struggling here, where it, with exception to UK, Republic of Ireland and Norway, where defamation falls under civil matter, those countries deliberately maintain stringent criminal defamation laws everywhere else in Europe. And that's a point you've just made. Um, you said, more importantly, it's not just whistleblowing. It's about the public's freedom to speak out, express opinion, and, and our ability to think all of this is being eroded because you can be put under such pressure. You talk about double standards and cherry picking, uh, hypocrisy, truth tellers are muzzled. And then you use a particular term, slap which uh, stands for strategic lawsuit against public participation or strategic litigation against public participation a lawsuit a forgive me sorry are lawsuits intended to censor intimidate and silence critics by burdening them with the cost of a legal defense until they abandon their criticism or opposition all of those points that you've made there, <clears throat> I believe we can see going on in, in UK. So they make sense to me. Yes, it was in fact uh, how I got to hear about SLAP, this strategic lawsuit, it's kind of mouthful, lawsuit against public participation, uh, was through an MP, an MEP in Lisbon uh, named Ana Gomez. And it was Mrs. Gomez who actually introduced me to my lawyer in Lisbon who managed to uh, have the uh, extradition uh, quashed by the Portuguese Supreme Court. An excellent uh, person. He's worked with many whistleblowers before. He's worked with uh, on the Rui Pinto case, and he's an excellent lawyer. 
and uh, I got a lot of help from those um, people. Uh, Mrs. Uh, Gomez, in particular, um, was the person who 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 actually got a lot of problems in the in the European Union when she was there because she was outright spoken about things like the the one journalist who had been murdered in Malta. Um, and she was an outright critic on that, um, Anna Gomez, and she's fought for freedom of speech and against these slap uh, processes for many, many years. And it's only got her problems, I think. Uh, well, I'm, I'm going to say only got her problems, but one of the things that we're seeing is where people have blown the whistle and they start to work together, share information share other people and their expertise then the thing starts to gain some momentum and of course that being the case it makes sense that what would the bad guys want to do they'd always want to silence whistleblowers and keep them isolated so there's some good news in what you're describing there as well i think now trevor i'm really pleased because i thought you were still isolated in in the Netherlands. Now you've told us that you're not, you're in a, excuse me, a safe location. Um, I would uh, really like to talk some more to you. I think there's all sorts of areas that we could go down. So I'm, I'm going to thank you for joining us today. I'm also going to add that I'm well aware that in UK at the moment, there's quite a big investigation being put together into uh, into Lloyd's Bank and some irregularities relating to several billion pounds is what I understand. So um, that being the case, it would seem that uh, things have certainly not settled down within the financial system. So there's a lot to talk about. But can we thank yeah. you for jo joining us today? Uh, any last comments you. you'd like to say to the audience? No, I, uh, well, I say thank you for having me on um, and uh, I appreciate it and I look forward to sharing more ideas and thoughts together on these subjects. These are very important subjects going forward I think for the whole of society. That, that's the key for me. It's not about whistleblowing for my um, uh, reward or anything like this. This is about whistleblowing because of the, for the future. It's for the future generations. That's what I'm doing this for. Um, yes. And I hope that by, by bringing this to the attention of, of people, it, we need more coverage, more distribution of this, and that's difficult in today's world. Um, I hope that this, the message gets out there so that the younger generations can pick up on this before we, we're all gone. Yeah. Okay, Trevor, thank, thank you very much for that. Well, I'm going to say stay okay. safe. Uh, it's been a, a really interesting discussion, and we will. We will do more. Thank you for joining us. Thank you very much, Brian. Nice to have met you. Thank you. Bye-bye.